Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 118, recorded on May 21st, 2019. Today we are going to talk about Amazon and Deliveroo, about surveillance capitalism, about health startups offering home diagnosis, and the European startup landscape, and much, much more. Our Digital Health Month is still on, so we have prepared a pre-recorded interview with uh, Sabina Visander, the Chief Commercial Officer of CRY. The Digital Health Focus in May is supported by Biorg4A, which is a global startup program recently launched by one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. If you have something to share on the topic of healthcare and medtech, please feel free to contact us because there is still time to get featured. We've got one and a half weeks to go. I'm your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. It's going great. Great to see you again. Yeah, same here. We both had sort of a vacation, I suppose. How was your, how did your traveling go? Well, I was gone for quite a long time going through of Vienna for pioneers and a short trip to Dublin. And then, then I was in Estonia for a press tour. And also I got to take in the great Latitude 59 conference, which was great to see all of the wonderful startups coming out of Estonia and also got to meet with Verif and Bolt or Taxify. Lots of great um, stories and things that will come up soon. So looking forward to sharing that all with you. And I also got a chance to meet with the Estonian president where she told us her favorite Estonian startups, which were Sorry as a Service, Click and Grow, and Teslio were her top picks. So that was very fun to learn about that. Do you agree with this? Uh, are these also your uh, favorite Estonian startups? Well, we've talked about Click and Grow before. I really like that one. It was really fun because the hotel we were staying in actually had a Click and Grow unit in the room, which is very neat. But in terms of my favorite Estonian startup, there there are so many, and I, I, I don't want to isolate anyone here. But I think Teslio is a really great one that she that she um, highlighted, a female founder who's very cool, really great product, has made a real big splash um, outside of Estonia and outside of Europe. So I think she had a, a few really interesting picks there. Yeah, we just ran uh, an interview with Crystal just a few weeks ago. So if you're interested, uh, feel free to go back and li- re-listen because it's a it's a really great one. So Natalie, you did much more uh, work-related traveling than I did, I have to say, because I was just uh, doing uh, having a holiday and cycling through the bad weather in Poland. Uh, but uh, yeah, this sounds this sounds really impressive. Now, have you managed to catch up with the news? And what was the what was the biggest deal of the week? Let's start with that. Yes, I have managed to keep up with the news, and I will let you cover the biggest deal that we learned about last week. But also, we got confirmation of SoftBank's investment into Berlin's Get Your Guide. We announced this on the podcast a few weeks ago, but we finally have pinned down the final confirmation. And the reported investment into that company was $484 million in investment for Get Your Guide. That is now confirmed and not just speculative news. So big round, but we expected it. 
Right. So yeah, well, we've got quite a few quite a few mega rounds uh, announced uh, over the over the past uh, few weeks or so, and this uh, brings us to the first story of the day, which is also the biggest uh, deal of uh, the last week, and that's of course uh, uh, the funding round uh, that Amazon led uh, for Deliveroo. And uh, so what I wanted to uh, to talk about uh, really is that the deal still can kind of fall apart. Uh, but first, just in case you missed it, so Deliveroo is a British food delivery platform. Uh, it now operates on 14 markets across the world, including Australia, Germany, Hong Kong, and, for example, the United Arab Emirates of all places. And uh, it just uh, secured a 575 million US dollar round uh, led by Amazon with participation from a bunch of other investors. In total, this new round brings the total amount raised by Deliveroo to a monstrous 1.5 $53 billion, and uh, reportedly it brings the valuation of the company to more than $3 billion. So the company has been reasonably successful so far. Uh, it had grown by 116% in 2017. So no wonder that Amazon got interested. But at the same time, it has to be said that Deliveroo is still losing money. Uh, in the same year, 2017, it reported 185 million pounds in losses. And it doesn't really uh, seem like it's going to, uh, to break the profitability barrier anytime soon. Now, there also have been rumors, there's a lot of rumors about Deliveroo. Uh, so there, there have been rumors that the company plans to go public in uh, 2020, uh, but uh, Deliveroo has yet to confirm or deny this. Other interesting rumors that uh, surfaced last fall were that both Amazon and Uber had been involved in the preliminary acquisition talks uh, with Deliveroo, but apparently neither of them resulted in uh, any agreement at all. Now, so what I wanted to actually talk and what's uh, pretty interesting about this funding round is that it still may not uh, go through. And uh, that's uh, something we can thank for to the British MP named uh, Tom Watson uh, from Labour, uh, who in the way of the announcement uh, tweeted uh, that, I quote, I shall be writing to the Competition and Markets Authority demanding they launch an investigation into this quote-unquote investment. The quote ends. So Competition Markets Authority, uh, also known as a CMA, is uh, the British... Uh, well, competition and antitrust body. And then uh, Watson also elaborated on Twitter uh, further on what he wasn't happy about uh, with this deal. So here's another quote uh, from him. Uh, the quote begins, They don't want to get their mighty claws on a food delivery system. They want deliverers tech and data. They don't just want to know how you eat, what you eat, when you eat. They'd want to know how best to extract your cash throughout your waking and sleeping hours. It's called surveillance capitalism, the quote ends. So, I mean, to me, this is really the sort of continuation of the trend of demonizing tech companies. And this demonization, it happens with the same sort of passion uh, with which we all cheered these same companies uh, five to ten years ago. And I think that both that uh, cheering and demonization, they are both extremes. And in my opinion, they are both sort of wrong. But... Anyways, uh, news-wise, uh, CMA has yet to react uh, to uh, Watson's allegations, and we are going to learn in the next few weeks whether it will actually open an official investigation uh, into this deal. So, Natalie, what do you think? Do you think we should allow Amazon uh, take, what is it, one-sixth or something of uh, Deliveroo? 
Well, I'm not going to speculate on should they or shouldn't they. And I think Tom Watson is making a very political point. And it sounds like he's read this this book that came out earlier this year, The Rise, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Sushana Zuboff. Um, this book has really made quite an impression here in the UK, but also in the US, basically understanding some of the mechanisms that lead tech companies to do some of the things that they do. Um, and that's why I think it's it's very telling that he kind of hits on this point about surveillance capitalism. And it sounds like he's trying to kind of score some political credibility, but will a statement by an opposition MP um, lead to anything substantial to happen in this deal? I, I don't think so especially it's very telling the CMA hasn't come out to say anything about this yet. So I'm not holding my my breath, let's say. I mean, we don't even know whether he actually wrote anything formal uh, to to the CMA yet. It might be just just a tweet. Right. And we're up uh, heading into election very shortly. I mean, everyone is trying to score political points right now. Speaking of which, if you are able to vote on this election, please do. I will say that statement. <laughs> okay, so with this understood, Natalie, you wanted to actually talk about something that has to do with our Digital Health Month, right? So yeah, please, please go ahead. Yeah, so it seems like everyone knows the story of Theranos, which is a Silicon Valley medical diagnostic startup that claimed to be able to test for thousands of conditions with just a drop of blood. And the downfall of the company and the resulting publicity around this case might have given you an impression that being able to do sophisticated medical tests without stepping into a doctor's office was more in the realm of fiction rather than reality. But as I learned recently and kind of over the course of this month that we've been focusing on medical technology and digital health, there are a ton of interesting European startups that are working in this space, and they're doing some really incredible things around home testing. And I thought I would share some of them with you this week. So earlier this month, we learned Let's Get Checked from Dublin, Ireland has raised a new $30 million round in support of their regulated at-home medical testing platform. And this round follows a $12 million round of investment that they raised last year. And this company is scaling very quickly into new markets. And they're currently active all across Europe. So you can, from most locations in Europe, you can order a Let's Get Checked kit and let's get checked is one word with no spaces, just just for clarification. Um, but you can also find them in the United Emirates and now in the United States. And the company is developing medical testing kits for consumers that really can do quite a lot of sophisticated things. So they started offering test kits for STD testing, but now they're offering things that give you evaluations for vitamin deficiency thyroid and liver functions to hormonal disorders, and now for overall wellness. For many of the kits, all you have to do is collect a blood sample on yourself, which they makes look easy, but might be difficult for some people. And you send back and then you get the results in a few days. 
The tests are not cheap. A simple STD test is about 49 euros, and some of the tests that they offer range to over 200 euros. But this isn't something that you would do casually. But when you look at the reviews, people seem to really like the service for their detailed results and for the professionalism of the company. Let's Get Checked is not alone in this space, and there's a number of other companies that are working on home testing for all different sorts of diagnostics. Um, One is called OneDrop Diagnostics, and they're from Switzerland. A company called Forth is from Bristol in the UK, and Thriva Health is from London. Thriva also does tracking with blood tests, and they offer something slightly different from the Let's Get Checked, which is a subscription service so that you can kind of get in the habit of tracking your health parameters more and more regularly. Thriva lets you choose different packages where you can build your own test to survey the different types of hormonal conditions or vitamin deficiencies that you might be particularly interested in. Thriva is only available in the UK for now, but they're hoping to expand very soon. And there's also companies that are offering overall health testing without using a blood test. London's Atlas Biomed has received a lot of press lately, and they have a solution that will test your gut biome using a stool sample. And they say that understanding your gut bacteria can help you better manage your health from knowing what foods to eat and how your diet affects gut bacteria. So, Andre, would you do one of these tests? It's a good question. Yeah, I have to say that I have heard uh, a few times that uh, gut bacteria are uh, a pretty good indicator of uh, overall health, and it's really it really makes a lot of sense to do the test this way. And uh, yeah, I certainly would. Uh, I certainly would. And uh, I don't like going to doctors in general and uh, doing this kind of stuff at home. I suppose it would. It, it would certainly help. So, would you or did you? Oh, I would like the more I read about kind of especially the reviews that these companies have, I wanted to do basically all the tests on myself. Um, I can't I'm not in a position of doing that right now, but um, I definitely am really excited. And that's why I wanted to share it with everyone on the podcast this week. And there's also some other interesting companies I wanted to share that that are developing medical technologies that can be used at home, but not for overall wellness, but more in the tune of chronic conditions. So I wanted to share two examples. One is called healthy.io, and they're from Tel Aviv and Testcard, which is a company that's based both in Sofia, Bulgaria, and in London. So these companies are using, are doing urine testing to evaluate kidney function. So Testcard just announced a new funding round of 2.5 million pounds this week. And healthy Io is one of the first smartphone apps that has been FDA approved as a class two medical device. And TestCard combines a urine test on a postcard with a smartphone app that will provide immediately results to help you in the prevention of kidney failure. And both of these companies are working with the UK's National Health Service to reach patients. And it's really exciting to see how these collaborations help get innovations to the public very quickly. And it's expected that the utilization of these technologies will help save the public health service millions of pounds in the first year. And the combination of more frequent testing is positioned to help patients take better care of their health. So while some of these on-demand medical testing solutions might seem like a hypochondriac dream, for more people, especially when patients, when they want to have better oversight and understanding of their health conditions, they're in a better position to take greater care of themselves. 
And I learned this firsthand just a few weeks ago when I was at Pioneers 19 in Vienna, when I met with the medical device manufacturer, Camu Health. They're sitting in Helsinki and they build smart inhalers for people with asthma. And their inhalers work along a smartphone app to monitor and measure your lung capacity, medication, and symptoms. I have asthma and their technology seems super interesting because it combines with weather and pollution data so you can track your conditions over time and help you anticipate and react to changes in real time. And what they've seen with their users is that these tools have helped them make better choices and act preventatively, something that's really important for people with asthma. So I'm really excited about this space and where things are going and seeing all of the exciting companies that are working on these at-home testing solutions just get me really energized about where the future of these technologies is going. Oh, this is really great. Yeah, I think the, I think the future of uh, health tech uh, certainly looks uh, looks quite bright. And uh, within uh, ten years, we're probably going to see a change beyond uh, beyond recognizing. And uh, yeah, I do hope that we're gonna be able to do more stuff ourselves at home. But at the same time, uh, in th- this way, we would be enabled to get better uh, doctor consultations, right? Because the doctors will have more time to actually work with people who uh, who need their attention. And there are definitely some concerns that doctors and practitioners have brought up about the availability of some of these services at home. Thankfully, sometimes the hurdle of uh, of testing doesn't mean that people will be testing all the time. And the more data and more experience we have with these products will, will help lead to better outcomes. But right now, I think the horizon is, is very bright when it comes to seeing what, what the future will bring here. Yeah, I guess at some point it might become actually a problem. So probably these uh, companies would have to sort of track to see sort of obsessive patterns in testing for uh, certain people and maybe try to prevent or provide certain uh, consultation, certain support to this to these people. Anyway, uh, now it is time to move uh, forward and uh, not uh, going anywhere from the topic of uh, healthcare. Uh, we have a pre-recorded interview with uh, Sabina Visander, the chief commercial officer of Cry. Let's uh, listen to it for 10 minutes and then we will be back uh, with uh, events overview and uh, stories, uh, books and podcast recommendations. Stay with us. We'll be right back. <music> For Tech.eu. I'm here in Paris uh, where I'm going to join uh, the VivaTech conference. Uh, I was lucky enough to jo- also join a Daphne event the day before where I uh, had the pleasure of uh, seeing Sabina on stage. Sabina is the CCO of a company called Kri, Swedish uh, telehealth company. And uh, I was really, really interested in the story that she was sharing on stage. And of course, I uh, took the opportunity to interview her for TechU. Sabina, welcome. Uh, can you briefly explain uh, what you do and what Kri uh, does as a company? Yeah, so I'm the chief commercial officer and, and, and that mainly puts me in a position where I think about the European markets right now. So how we become a European company and not a Nordic company. And and what we do is we try to digitalize primary healthcare. So we think that the way it's working today is part of the last century uh, or even worse. And it needs to sort of catch up in many ways. It's hard to disagree with that. Uh, we also make it sound uh, a lot easier than it actually is, especially in Europe, where you have different regulations, also like, different cultures, different you know types of, uh, of healthcare and the way it's uh, structured. So how does that um, feel as a company trying to conquer this European market and not just tackle one country at a time? So what's the strategy? So, I mean, if it would be easy, everyone would do it, right? I mean, healthcare is 
is huge. It's one of the biggest industries in the world and there's so much inefficiency. So there's a lot of value to be captured. And the reason very few dare to tackle it, it's because it's a nightmare when it comes to regulation and policy and uh, uh, dealing with medical operations and dealing with uh, healthcare outcomes and making, I mean, it's, it's our job to making sure that no one gets mistreated or, or dies when they, they see a service. I mean, not many other tech companies have these kind of complexities, but that's, I mean, we like that. We like hard challenges and we think this job needs to be done. So we're kind of up for the challenge. Of course, there's a lot that could be done on the policy side to kind of ease this change from zero digital to, to a digital healthcare system, right? Sure. And that's a great answer. I'm wondering the environment that you describe, has it already evolved and changed since the time the company was founded up until today? I mean, definitely. And I think different different markets are in different stages of realizing what needs to be done, right? When we started out in, in Sweden four or five years ago, everyone was saying, uh, this will never work. And then the conversation has switched to sort of, yes, it might work, but not in your way. And now the conversation is is rather... Uh, how can we make this fit into our old healthcare system and into our physical clinics? Or how do we put the two pieces together, physical and digital? And we see that the other markets are kind of following the same path, but of course in a much faster trajectory. Now when we sort of proven that it can be done and it has a very positive effect on, on the healthcare system, we see that um, even markets with very sort of conservative uh, Doctor unions like Germany, even they are sort of jumping on the train saying, yes, this is something we should do, but we don't know really how yet, right? Is it also something that's um, mostly driven by the consumers because it's, you know, the younger generation being more, you know, adapt to using new technologies? Are they sort of driving this more than the actual healthcare industry? Definitely. I think the consumers are ready for this in all of Europe, right? And then there's the two other important stakeholder groups, which is the, the policymakers and the payers, which are normally the same in healthcare. And then we have the doctors, so the clinicians, the nurses, the, the psychologists, etc., that providing the healthcare. And I, I mean, the consumers, we've proven that they, they love this. And we just need to make sure that we're building the product in the way that brings the, the clinicians, the doctors and the payers on board with this journey. We can't sort of let them slow us down too much. They can't product develop for us, but we need to make sure that we're doing something they're comfortable with all the way because they need to be part of this sort of change. Fantastic. Um, you're a venture funded company. I think you've raised almost $100 million uh, since your founding. Uh, interestingly, if I understand correctly, you were on the investment side. You were with Creandum, one of the early stage investors in uh, Cree. So what made you switch uh, sides in a way? I mean, this is far too exciting journey to be sort of only on the coaching side, right? I want to be part of the, the teams, the place uh, in the field. So that's why I jumped chip. I mean, uh, we still have Creandum uh, as a very supporting part of the investor group. And, and I still have my old colleague on the board of directors. So I still have that sort of link. But I think um, I was seeing that this is a, a great team already sort of from 10 people. It was very, very strong team. It was very strong product market fit. And I just felt that this is sort of once in a lifetime chance of jumping on something that will change a whole industry. Right? Great. Well, I think that's a great story. The capital that you've raised so far, obviously, has gone a lot to product development. It's also gone to expanding into new markets, uh, Ukraine and, and France, where we are now. What's the next uh, chapter for Cree? So, as I said, I think a lot of markets are opening up in Europe. A lot of, of uh, policymakers are acting faster than we 
could have expected. And I mean, we are on the barricades for this change. So that's, that's really amazing how fast they're, they're moving. We see that there are really interesting things happening in Germany and other parts of the Dach region. And, and uh, given sort of the size of, of those markets, I think that will definitely be the next horizon. But then you could also say that, I mean, we're on the track to, to take Europe and we think we'll do that fast, but we also have a lot of respect for kind of the heavy localization that's needed in each market. So I think we're also cautious to leave our, our newest market, UK and France, too, too fast. Great. Well, that's the geographical side of things. Uh, what about product development? Where do you see uh, the product evolving to? Or do you think you'll stick mostly to your core of uh, delivering the best telehealth service that you can possibly provide? So I think, I um, mean, um, video meetings with a doctor, that's just a very sort of first baby step towards digitalizing healthcare. And it's, it's worked really well for us because a very natural step. You feel like, oh, it's still talking to a real doctor. It still feels very human, it still feels very personalized. And the regulators are on board with saying, yes, this is quality healthcare. But I mean, the technology is already far ahead of that, right? There's a lot you can do without doctors. You could, it's a lot of diagnosis you can do only by sort of asking the patients the right questions in the right orders, for example. So I think our job is to figure out how to use this technology and make everyone comfortable along the way. But I think, I mean, we're moving very much from sort of this few use cases of, of seeing a doctor, seeing a psychologist or seeing a clinician into much more being a go-to place for healthcare, right? So integrating with the biggest pharmacy change uh, in each country to make sure that whatever you get prescribed, we get delivered to your door and including sort of upstream from having your clinician meeting, for example, making sure that you know why you're sick and you know what kind of doctor you should see and you know how to navigate the healthcare system as a patient, right? Great. Um, what do you, what would you say is your biggest challenge as a company today? So I think um, there's a lot of heavy lifting in each market on the policy and regulator side. And again, that's because it's hard. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's our USP, right? We're really good at, at navigating those kind of very complex healthcare systems. I'm sure it will continue to always be one of the big areas that we are pushing on, right? Great. Uh, final question, a bit broader. You've been involved in the Swedish startup ecosystem, both from the investment side and now on the entrepreneur side. What's your opinion of it? How do you see it as an insider? Um, I mean, the, the Stockholm sort of tech system is getting a lot of credit from, from tech journalists and, and there are reasons for that, right? We're a one million people city and we're, of course, punching well above our weight when it comes to creating startups. I mean, as we've seen in many other kind of tech ecosystems, it's such a kind of slippery slope, a positive slippery slope. Once it becomes really cool to work in startups, that's where sort of the young talent go. They don't want to go to the investment banks. They don't want to go to IBM or McKinsey. They want to work at like a five person garage startup. So, I mean, uh, I'm expecting that to, to continue from Stockholm, but then I think um, everyone's wondering, will this kind of very, very positive market wins and everyone getting funding, will that continue? Mm. Now I'm, I think I'm too far from the kind of the investment side to answer that question, right? But I think even if that kind of slows down a little bit, I think we've created a city with a lot of talent, a lot of people having kind of like five plus years of experience working in startups, and that will continue to sort of create good things, right? 
That's great. And we, of course, at TechEU will be watching as well. Uh, Sabina, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with Cree. Thank you. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu, episode number 118. And now it is time to talk again about uh, the events coming up in the coming weeks. Natalie, what should we expect and uh, where should we at least want to go? So the event that I am most looking forward to this month that unfortunately I won't be able to attend is held on the 30 and 31st of May, where we have Digital K and Sofia Bulgaria, which is the region's most preeminent tech event. And this year they will be, quote, revealing the passwords of digital information, end quote. So you won't want to miss it. And not to mention, they're bringing some of Europe's top investors to Bulgaria as well. And it's a great chance for everyone in the ecosystem to get a change of scenery. And especially when they're joined by some of the best people of Europe's startup ecosystem, who is going to be there. And just looking at the agenda, I'm really jealous of all of the wonderful people that will be in attendance. So I hope that many of you can make it. And this week, I wanted to announce another event that's taking place in June. And I wanted to give you this early heads up to our podcast listeners because I know it's a free event and I think it'll be very much in demand. So I want you to definitely put that on your calendar if it's something that interests you. And what it is, well, it's called the Hack Coworking Hackathon, which will be held in London on the 15th to the 16th of June. Coworking is one of those integral parts of the early stage founder experience. And I know everyone really has a view on how to make coworking better. Many of us have been in coworking spaces, worked in them, visited them. So we kind of understand a lot of the intricacies and also some of the pain points about coworking. And that's why I really like this hackathon that's taking place in London, which is put on by a great group of people. And they're working bringing everyone together to hack some of the best new solutions for co-working. And it'll be held at a, a venue called Hub Hub. And it's bound to bring together a great group of people to work on ways to improve the experience in co-working spaces. The event is free, open to everyone, not just developers or product designers. And there's a few really big prizes to be won. So it seems like such a great time. So if you're in London that weekend, you won't want to miss it. And we have the link to the event in the show notes. It's free. I imagine it'd be highly in demand. It won't be able to accommodate everyone. So if something that you are really keen to do, don't miss it. So if you're looking for more things to do this month or next month, do check out the events section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, please let us know at the link in the show notes. It sounds pretty cool. Speaking of co-working spaces, I normally work from home and I think you too, right? So why don't you go to co-working spaces to work then? The reason I'm not going to a co-working space is because I'm traveling quite a lot and I just don't really see the investment um, making a lot of sense. And also, I'm such a sociable person. I would not last very long because I would get everyone off task. I used to work at co-working space all the time in Berlin. I used to work at Beta House, at Factory, um, and lots of different co-op when they had co-working, St. Overholtz. I was at all of them. But I am very social and I, I want to know what everyone's doing. And I think it would be just a major distraction. Also, there's a wonderful co-working space here in Edinburgh called Codebase, which is one of the largest co-working spaces in the UK. But they don't allow dogs. So I'm always here with my partner in crime. He's not allowed to come to that co-working space. So sorry, I'm not allowed to go. So <laughs> that's, that's the main reason for me. Wow, that's a that's a pretty serious reason, I have to say. 
That's- well, I know that there is a number of co-working spaces that I've been to that have allowed dogs that have had experienced some accidents. So I understand not every place can be dog friendly, but I am most definitely dog friendly and I wouldn't be the same without Rudolph here. So unfortunately, that's why I'm not at the co-working space more often, but I do visit it pretty regularly. Right. Well, probably it's a good thing that my cat is not interested in going with me to a co-working space. So I also go once in a while, but generally I also prefer working from home. I have my screens here. I have my setup here. I have my mics here. So, But I do agree that uh, co-workings are a pretty important element of uh, of an ecosystem. And uh, this uh, hackathon that you mentioned uh, sounds, uh, sounds really cool. I- I'm really interested also in seeing what comes out of it. What uh, What can you... What can you even come up with during a hackathon on co-working? Like what, uh, what sort of ideas can you expect? I would be really interested in uh, reading more about it. And if they issue any sort of report, we will also mention it uh, later in the future episodes of the podcast. Now, let's move on. And it's time for the recommendation part. And um, for today's one, I'm going to stay on the topic of Amazon and uh, share a story that's actually relatively old. It was published in early April. And back then, I saved it in my Keep Notebook and sort of forgot about it. Uh, So then I just found it... uh, earlier today and still wanted to talk about it because it really reiterates on a point that I've made a few times before and it's mostly about the current state of artificial intelligence and machine learning products. So first things first, the piece. The piece is in Bloomberg and it is called Amazon Workers Are Listening to What You Tell Alexa. Uh, The name tells it all really. It turns out that there is a pretty big team at Amazon whose job is basically to listen to a small subset of user voice inputs and uh, teach Alexa to react properly. And just to put things in context, when I say a small subset... Uh, What I mean is hundreds of thousands of recordings processed uh, uh, by uh, this uh, team every week. And the piece uh, on Bloomberg details uh, how this whole thing actually works and also mentions that the people doing this work, they actually routinely share the snippets uh, they're working on in internal chat rooms. And they do it either to get help uh, from the others uh, if uh, something is like unintelligible or whatever, or just because uh, these snippets are particularly amusing and they want uh, the others uh, to hear them. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing, first of all, and I'm not saying that it's just Amazon that has to be blamed. Google and Apple teach their voice assistants in exactly the same way. And this basically brings us to the point that I've made repeatedly on this podcast. So whenever you hear that artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms are processing loads of data coming from either people or the environment in general, then most probably there are humans involved, humans looking at uh, this information, humans sort of processing this information in different ways. It is the case with computer vision systems and self-driving cars. There was a great piece on the BBC about it a few months ago. I think we featured it on the podcast. It is the case with, for example, the camera-enabled doorbell called Ring, another company that's actually owned by Amazon. Or, for example, with document verification systems. That's, for example, Verif that you, Natalie, mentioned before. The list goes on, and it's not necessarily bad. It's just something that we need to be more aware of. Artificial intelligence is not magic. And at this point, there are always humans to guide and teach it. And uh, what I do think is necessary is uh, for these particular companies, uh, for Amazon, for Google, for any other 
organizations uh, doing it this way to be more open about it to actually explain uh, what they do uh, to explain at which circumstances uh, people can get access to your data and make sure that uh, any of these uh, snippets of voice or uh, images cannot be attributed to a particular person so basically make uh, things uh, privacy friendly so uh, check out the Bloomberg piece if you're interested in uh, this kind of thing it's a really good one and and I will post a link uh, uh, in the show notes. Now, Natalie, what was uh, what was your uh, thing for today? Yeah, so the title of the piece that I'm um, suggesting this week is called Mapping the European Startup Landscape. And this month has been mentioned several times before that we've been focusing a lot on med tech and medical technologies. And in the course of reporting this month, it's exposed to me the incredibly varied landscape of the companies that are in this field, as well as the realization that in one month, it would be impossible to do justice to all the really exciting different things that are happening in this space. But something I wanted to recommend this time is an article that comes from Nature, and it came out last month. And it's a piece that has mapped the European biomedical landscape. So if you've studied the startup ecosystem in Europe for any amount of time, you'll see there's lots of attempts to map things and track things. But many of these lack rigor or methodological integrity. And this study, which tracks only companies in the biomedical space, diverges from a lot of those other studies in its construction by having a very rigorous methodology and high level of accuracy. Because of this, we're able to learn some really compelling insights about what happens in these companies and how they behave. For example, in the biomedical space, you find a strong relationship between patenting levels, clinical trials, and startup deals. In Europe, there's one standout, and that's Switzerland. Per capita, the country receives the greatest amount of funding, local VC presence, and the highest amount of human capital when it comes to entrepreneurship. The researchers of the study were able to indicate that the majority of the variation in startup financing activity between countries can be explained collectively by scientific output, patenting activity, and the presence of biomedically focused VC companies. This is a study that can't easily be done for other fields, so it gives a really interesting indication of some of the relationships that underline many of the venture deals we see in the biomedical space. So I would invite everyone to have a look at the article. It's not that long, very insightful, and really tells us a lot about what's happening in the startup landscape when it comes to biomedical companies in Europe. It sounds very scientific. But it's very easy to read, super accessible, and the insights are very clear. And by isolating it just to biomedical companies, we're able to understand some of the mechanisms that lead to venture funding um, that you wouldn't be able to find for SaaS or fintech. Because patenting and scientific output is so closely linked to um, the success of companies in this field, we're able to see some of these underlying mechanisms that are made visible. So I think that's really interesting. Right. Well, health tech is really a fascinating uh, industry uh, in and of itself. And I'm really actually happy that we are doing this uh, focus month because I've also had a bunch of interviews with uh, different people from the industry of startups and uh, company builders, for example. It's totally different from everything else. And it's really uh, cool to do sometimes sort of a deep dive to understand uh, what's, what's actually going on. 
Now it is time for us to wrap it up for today. Uh, this is it. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review and because this will help others find the show and will mean the world to us. Tell a friend or colleague about the podcast if it's relevant to them, of course, and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound pulse.com please feel free to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie thank you so much for joining today thank you for listening everyone enjoy the rest of your week we'll talk to you next wednesday bye bye <laughs>